Welcome to this episode of Consider It Blacklit. I am Kim Singleton, your host. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, Consider It Blacklit highlights films, television programs, and stage plays featuring African-Americans up front and behind the scenes. We also discuss social issues as it relates to some of these programs and how they may or may not impact our communities. So thank you for tuning in and we hope you continue to tune in each week. Today, it is my pleasure to highlight a documentary about the famed tennis player, Arthur Ashe. It's called Citizen Ashe. Joining me is the director of this documentary, Rex Miller. Welcome, Rex. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. I'm such a fan of your work. Um, why don't you share with our audience a little bit about your background and how you got into making documentaries? Okay. Uh, so I was raised in Astoria, Queens, and I am the offspring of two tennis fanatics. So uh, I was the kid in the crib by the court at you know age two or, or even younger. So had a relationship with tennis, uh, growing up in Queens, exposed to a lot of different types of people and a lot of different stories, read the New York Times with my father most days, and just got really into photography and photojournalism, uh, really by passing by the magazine store, remember those? Uh, by my house and stopping off after school a lot and leafing through like dozens of magazines. And I was really drawn to uh, titles like National Geographic and Sports Illustrated for their photography. So that was my first path out of college was photojournalism. Tell me, um, how much did you know about Arthur Ashe? I'm assuming a lot um, since you're all into the, the sport of tennis, but how much did you know about him before you started this documentary? Well, I knew a lot as a fan. Um, I, I had an opportunity to go to the U.S. Open a lot starting at a really young age. So every and we lived 10 minutes from there in Astoria. Uh, the U.S. Open when I was a kid was played at Forest Hills. And I used to go there even from age six. And in fact, in 1968, when I was six, I was at the finals of the U.S. Open when Arthur Ashe won. And because that match was played on a Monday, because it was rained out the day before, I, uh, my parents had to go to work. So they dropped me at the, at the open and I watched that match uh, by myself as a little kid. So I always followed Arthur as a, uh, a fan of his successes, but also as a tennis player, uh, uh, myself as a young tennis player, my friends and I would uh, you know, imitate his serve and how he played and, you know, different friends would use Arthur Ashe's racket. So he was one of many players we looked up to, but he was so unique because of uh, being African-American in the very, very white sport. And uh, my mom's Jamaican, she's mixed race. So that was kind of a pull to uh, cheering for him and rooting for him as kind of an underdog and very, very unique in this sport. And, uh, you know, Arthur being involved in, uh, civil rights and social issues and advocating for oppressed peoples, you know, everywhere, not just in the States. He stood out and attracted a lot of attention and, you know, attracted my attention. I had an opportunity to go to South Africa in the mid eighties as a aspiring photojournalist. So his work there and his, you know, trying to make a difference in that fight against apartheid at the time also really stood out. So I knew quite a bit about him, but 
then this opportunity came up to get involved with the documentary really became a very deep dive and I learned a whole lot more. There were so many things to learn in this documentary. There was a mention of a Dr. Johnson um, who helped Arthur Ashe, but he was also influential in the tennis career of Althea Gibson. Why don't you share with our audience a little bit more about who this Dr. Johnson is? Right. Well, Dr. Johnson uh, was Dr. Robert Whirlwind Johnson. That was his nickname, Whirlwind, at, when he was a college football running back in about the late 20s, I think. So Dr. Johnson was a Black physician in Lynchburg, Virginia, and uh, a, a local successful doctor who took up tennis and became a big tennis enthusiast. So being that there were no facilities, uh, you know, public tennis courts for Blacks in Lynchburg, Virginia in the 40s, he built a backyard tennis court. So Dr. Johnson and his good friend, uh, Dr. Hubert Eaton, who was also a physician and African-American, lived two, three hours away in Wilmington, North Carolina. So doctors Johnson and Eaton both had backyard tennis courts and had de facto black tennis academies. They were actually open to, to all kids, uh, I'd say primarily African-American at the time. So in the summer, Dr. Johnson would really hold a tennis academy at his house in the backyard and kids would come from the North. Uh, Art Carrington, who's in the film, was one of the participants. He came from New Jersey. And as he says in the film, it was a little disconcerting to spend a summer in Lynchburg, Virginia, just the name Lynchburg, Virginia, you know, as a, as a northerner. So Dr. Johnson uh, had taken on Althea as a project and brought her to Lynchburg where she went, uh, sorry, Lynchburg was the summer home of the Black Tennis Academy and the winter home for a few of these players was in Wilmington with Dr. Eaton. So Althea lived with Dr. Eaton there for four winters going to high school from age 18 to 22. And then in the summers, Dr. Johnson would take a, a travel team of young players around the country. They would go down south to Georgia and North Carolina, up to Washington, New Jersey, Ohio, and play in these uh, tournaments, which at the time were segregated and held by the ATA, not the USTA, but the ATA, the American Tennis Association, which is the oldest black sports organization in America, started in 1916, I believe. So uh, there you have it, doctors Eaton and Johnson, but uh, Dr. Johnson's connection to Arthur Ashe came when uh, Arthur won a local tournament in Richmond that Dr. Johnson attended, and he talked to Arthur's father about having him come and stay for a summer and that's how their relationship got started when Arthur was about 11 years old. And he spent most, he spent every summer with Dr. Johnson up until about 17, age 17. Wow, wow. It was mentioned in the film that tennis was not in the Olympics until about 1988, which to me seems fairly recent. Uh, what were the circumstances around that and them getting into the Olympics? Can you share anything with us about that? I'm not an expert on that, but, you know, eventually every sport gets back into the Olympics or gets mm -hmm. into the Olympics. I mean, skateboarding, I think, is in the Olympics and whatnot. So 88 was when the uh, 
the Olympics decided also that it was okay for professionals to compete because tennis had long ditched uh, amateurism and uh, the Olympics used to be for amateurs only. So it was, it was a series of events uh, that finally led the men's and women's pro tennis tours to incorporate the Olympics into their schedule. And the Olympics even gives uh, ranking points to the tennis players. So it was, it, it was a process. Right, right. This film clearly lays out um, the evolution of Arthur Ashe's attitude or his willingness to speak out um, about the civil rights movement. He pretty much went from a pacifist to an activist. Um, and you had a lot of audio of him actually speaking so you could understand what he was thinking at each stage of his process. Tell us what it was like to, to pull together all that footage and, and what was that process like and how did you get access to it? Right. So, yeah, we had a great find. Uh, first of all, I never set out to make a tennis film. And uh, even though I'm a tennis guy, it was really more about his personal journey and, you know, his life as a evolving and eventually full fledged social activist. So I spent several weeks at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, which is a, an amazing uh, repository for all kinds of archival material. And that's where there are 47 boxes of Arthur Ashe's personal archives that the family gifted to the Schomburg when, when he passed away. So in one of those boxes, I found this, you know, it must've been about a thousand pages of a transcript. And I was able to figure out that this was a transcript from tapes of an interview that the author Arnold Rampersad did with Arthur for a biography, uh, his famous biography, uh, Days of Grace. Uh, so those were just words on the printed page. And I thought, and, and it was so interesting because it was Arthur talking and it wasn't a published interview. So it was very rough and raw and he was just talking on all kinds of subjects. And there were even a few pages where there was no interviewer and Arthur was just speaking on his own into a dictaphone, remember those? Uh, so our archival producer, Hannah Shepard, tracked down Mr. Rampersad, the author, and he's a professor emeritus at Stanford at this point. And he said, I have no idea where those tapes are, but I'll take a look for you up in my attic. And he called us a few days later and he said, I just found 33 micro cassettes. Would you like to hear them? And so that was upwards of 40 hours of Arthur talking. And most of them were pretty good quality. Some were varying quality, but it was just Arthur talking. And in the editing process, it was always, oh, we have two or three people telling this story but now we have Arthur telling this story and, and we have Arthur giving his feelings about this incident. And so that really became a little gold mine for us as documentarians to have Arthur's voice be the main voice of the film. I, I, I loved it because it was very honest um, in becoming this activist and this voice for for civil rights, so um, yeah, that was amazing. I, I would add that it really was an evolution for him because of where he grew up in the deep south in the 40s and 50s. And 
as is shown in the film, he was very, very powerfully affected by the murder of Emmett Till, who was the same age as Arthur. So, you know, he, as he says, if it didn't matter even if you were illiterate, if you were a young black boy in the 40s, uh, 55 it happened, uh, you knew who Emmett Till was. So that contributed to, to in his early life, you know, he was constantly told to keep your head down, don't make waves, don't speak up, you know, get along with everybody. And plus in the tennis world, Arthur had to kind of, you know, tread carefully or he knew or he felt strongly that he would have been like drummed out of tennis if he started making waves. So it wasn't until he legitimately became a champion that he really started to speak out. And as he said to his brother, Johnny, you know, I'm a champion now. People will want to hear what I have to say and I will have a platform and I intend to use it. So it was an evolution for him. Right, right, right. I liked how the film laid out the relationship between Arthur Ashe and the activist, Harry Edwards. He really didn't like him at the beginning. He felt like Arthur Ashe didn't speak up enough and they eventually became friends. So how hard was it to get um, video and audio clips of Harry? Because it was so honest and it was so real um, about their relationship and how it evolved into a friendship. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, Harry was very open about what he initially thought of Arthur in this, when the struggle was going on in, in 1968 or even before 67, 68. And he frankly flat out called Arthur and Uncle Tom, you know, and Arthur was constantly dealing with this idea of quote, not being black enough. And uh, Arthur, you need to make waves, you need to protest, you need to, you know, lash out against this all white tennis world. And uh, Arthur, you know, laid it out for Harry. And even in these tapes, Arthur recounted telling Jesse Jackson the same thing. You know, I'm going to do things my way. Okay. So uh, in terms of archival uh, material that we found to illustrate or support these, you know, arguments as we lay out, uh, all credit due to our archival producers, Hannah Shepard and Lizzie McGlynn. Um, they both found some, you know, stuff that people hadn't seen before. And uh, that's, that's what I love, you know, is the research, uh, finding this stuff. And uh, so they just did a lot of digging. I mean, I did a lot of digging too, uh, spending weeks at the Schomburg. But you just look around and uh, talk to a lot of people and, and you never know where it's going to come from. And you just kind of keep digging. One of the other highlights that I noticed, and I, was going, I want to get your opinion on it. Talk to us about the pressure that athletes of this era felt in speaking out about civil rights when they became famous and came to the forefront. Althea Gibson also had that issue. Yeah, great question, Kim. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, whether you're a top athlete or a top singer, you know, anybody who's got a platform uh, in times of political strife, which when isn't there political strife, but there's gonna be pressure uh, for this person, this individual to take a stand and speak out for the benefit uh, and betterment of their people. So if, uh, if there's an athlete who spends the first 
20 years of his life hitting tennis balls and thinking about that and then wins a big tournament and is expected to give an opinion on the civil rights issues of the day, those, those uh, you know, thoughts might not, or that argument might not be completely gelled yet. You know, it takes some time. And Althea in particular had a lot of pressure on her because she was the first. Uh, I wound up making a film about Althea before this Arthur film. And that was a big theme of that film. Um, why aren't you making speeches? Why aren't you marching? And Jeannie Ash laid it out for me. She, she has an interview in the Althea film, but she laid it out, uh, which is not in the film, but I think is very interesting. She compared Arthur's struggle and march to incorporating civil rights uh, with Althea's. And first of all, Althea was 10, 15 years before Arthur. So she came up in the early and mid fifties. And, you know, the, uh, I think, uh, so yeah, Arthur, his big moment was winning the US Open in 68. And Althea broke the color barrier in about 51. So uh, our, uh, Arthur grew up with a lot of support from various institutions as Jeannie Ash laid out for me. Um, in Richmond, he was involved with the church, okay, which, you know, gave him a, a bit of a back, uh, well, a support team. He then went to UCLA, a world famous top level institution. He joined the US Army and was stationed at West Point. And West Point propped him up, you know, mostly for their own purposes, uh, you know, showing what a, what a great guy he was and juggling tennis and his service. Uh, after that, Arthur was on the U.S. Davis Cup team, the national team in tennis, and then he was a representative of the ATP, the Pro Tennis Tour. So Arthur always had these people kind of and institutions supporting him in his quest to you know, pursue a civil rights agenda. And Althea was single, a black female, 15 years before Arthur, plus she, you know, come... Althea's background was even more, much more disadvantaged than Arthur's. So for Althea, becoming a tennis champion was more about just a means to survival. Whereas for Arthur, um, Arthur, by the time he was 22, he had a college degree and a, and a relationship with the military. He, he could have just gone and gone into ordinary civilian life. So his tennis was his platform, very intentionally so. And he made it his goal to, you know, make a change in the world. So tennis was his vehicle for doing that, whereas Althea was just trying to have a life. Wow. Wow. Because I've seen the Althea documentary, too, and that was just amazing. Um, and I was fascinated to learn little facts about um, Arthur Ashe's personal life. For instance, I think it was mentioned that his father couldn't read. And it, it was interesting to me because when you think about tennis, um, and back in that time, it was perceived to be this upper middle class white sport. So a black man coming into it, you would think he came from an upper middle class black family, but his father couldn't read. Uh, can you share any more information about his father? Because I just find that fascinating. Well, I think you raise a good point. So one pathway for a kid into sports is a parent 
that has resources to spend on that sport. The other pathway is the kid that grows up right next to the tennis court. And that's what Arthur's childhood was. So he grew up literally like 50 feet or less from four tennis courts. And his father was the caretaker, custodian and policeman, policeman for the black public parks in Richmond, okay? And yeah, he grew up uh, leaving school at an early age to go work and support his family. And Mr. Ash had many jobs and little businesses. He, he could fix houses and he drove a, the car for some, a couple of white businessmen and did jobs for them. And he, so he was just a very entrepreneurial, on the go, ambitious, hardworking uh, man. And he always instilled in Arthur the hard work attitude and also keep your head down, uh, stay out of trouble, okay? And here's a story that was not in the film. You, you only have 90 minutes, you can't put everything in there. But uh, I was told in, a, in, a, in an interview by a gentleman who grew up in Richmond with Arthur playing tennis at the same park. And he said about Mr. Ar Mr. Ash, the, when the job that was given to him to take care of the public parks, the black public parks, made him the first black policeman in Richmond. And it was years later that they finally officially had black uh, men become officially policemen. But this gentleman told me that uh, Arthur's father, Mr. Ash, in his words, he said, he was the first black man that I knew that carried a gun legally. And he basically said, nobody messed with Mr. Ash. So he was this no-nonsense, stern disciplinarian. And even though he couldn't read, he was very you know, successful and, and uh, how should we say, committed you know, in, in life. And one of the ways that Arthur and his father bonded is that Arthur would read you know, the newspaper to him uh, most days. And so Arthur, uh, education became very important, you know, in the Ash family for Arthur, you know. And Kim, if I may, I just want to point out, I didn't make this film all by myself. Uh, I do have a great, amazing co-director, Sam Pollard, who came on, uh, you know, in the last year of the project and locked himself in the edit room and was really like the, the, the elder statesman and mature voice in putting all this amazing footage together you know I, i'm the kudos one. to both of you i'm very familiar yeah. with sam pollard's work yeah yeah Thank and you. we had a great time traveling with this film so um kudos to sam and always give a shout out and thank him for coming on board this project rex we are running out of time but before we sign off i would like you to share with our audience where they can see citizen ash Oh, if you Google watch Citizen Ash, you'll find it on uh, pay-per-view and it will air if folks like to watch TV with commercials, CNN is going to air it nationally on June 26th, the first day of Wimbledon, and then it'll reside on HBO Max. But for the moment, you can just uh, Google it and it's on various platforms, uh, I think for five bucks or so to stream it. Citizen Ash. You can Google to find out where you can watch it online right now. It will be aired on CNN in June, and eventually it will land on HBO Max. Thank you for tuning in today, and until next week, consider yourself blacklit. <laughs>